0: Hello and welcome, Elizabeth Lockwood here. I'm your host for Mile Long Trace, where we unpack the process of practicing commercial interior design. This podcast is a catalyst to elevate you as a commercial interior designer, to make you resilient and successful at your career by unpacking the facets of the design process elevating your professional practice through organizational dynamics tips, celebrating emerged practitioners through a series of candid interviews so that you can hear how they navigated their career path. And lastly, creating a Q&A platform to build quality professional resources. In the end, I want you to feel supported in your role as a commercial interior designer so that you can be successful in your career. As passionate designers, we want to elevate the commercial interior design industry by providing credible resources to support emerging practitioners. In order to keep this content accessible, Mile Long Trace is seeking industry partners and sponsors to grow this platform. Industry sponsors and partners that are passionate about supporting, influencing, and advancing commercial interior design. Mile Long Trace is offering annual and a la carte sponsorships. More information and to contact us, go to milelongtrace.com. Generous sponsorship dollars support the future of commercial interior design by building a stronger community, knowledge base, and attrition at firms and an industry at large. Welcome to a bonus episode on microbes in the built environment, where we will be looking at designing for the unseen. What happens when we deplete our building environment of microbes in the built environment? With all this talk about having scorched environments, I thought we should take a deep dive into the building microbiome to understand what happens when we deplete our built environment of the good microbes. Today I have Mark Fritz. He's an Associate Director of Outreach and Knowledge Exchange at the Institute for Health in the Built Environment and Research Assistant Professor at University of Oregon. Mark's role entails researching how to design the unseen in our built environments, from microbes, molecules, to precipitation, carbon, and energy in use in order to promote healthy individuals, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. And really what they do at the Institute for the Health in the Built Environment is they create an intersection between biology, medicine, chemistry, and engineering to look at how to promote a healthy built environment. Currently, Mark and the team he works with at IHBE are studying the microbiome of the built environment. Recently, they published Considerations to Reduce COVID-19 Transmission, which is titled 2019 Novel Coronavirus Pandemic, Built Environment Considerations to Reduce Transmission. Today, we're going to take a deep dive to unpack what the building microbiome is. We're going to discuss considerations designers can take to reduce the transmission of viruses, we're going to take a dive into differentiating good and bad microbes, how the good microbiome supports human health, and how to thrive a microbiome in the built environment. Without further ado, Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Mark, how's your morning been going? Uh, very well. It was an early morning today because we actually have been uh, talking to journalists in Europe in Berlin, so... Uh, we start the, m- the morning sometimes early because of that nine-hour time difference.
0: Are you able to share with us what you've been talking to them about?
1: Uh, we're talking about, of course, what's on everybody's minds right now, COVID-19 and the built environment, and the paper that we came out with back in April.
0: Hey, Mark, can we back up for a second and talk about what led you to doing research in the
1: microbiome? So my background is uh, rather unusual. I spent almost a decade as a US public health service uh, commissioned officer, I was a lieutenant commander, and in that role I was a dentist uh with Indian Health Service and studied oral microbiomes uh in my in my duties. And since that time, I've transitioned uh to architecture. I've practiced architecture, designed uh, all kinds of typologies from healthcare to Embassies and everything in between, and now I'm at the University of Oregon in the role of associate director of knowledge exchange and research assistant professor in the Institute for Health in the Built Environment, doing research around a lot of different factors of you know what impacts health in the built environment. So when when I think about health uh, in the built environment and our institute in general, we think about Many scales of health from the scale of the individual to the community to the planet and with that comes also many scales of investigation from molecules and microbes in our indoor environment uh, all the way to carbon in our in our planetary environment yeah it's and it's it's not a terrible stretch uh, when you start thinking about it to make the connection between dentistry and and architecture and microbiome research uh, you know first you know dentistry's got a lot of hands-on fabrication, obviously at a much smaller scale with tolerances in, you know, microns instead of inches, you know, compared to to buildings. But the impact uh, to your oral health of decisions that you make uh, on the microbiome is is similar to the impact to your building's microbiome based on decisions that you make. So there, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of similarities when you really drill into it.
0: Can you talk some more about some of those research initiatives you mentioned?
1: Yeah, sure. My so I developed a course called Design the Unseen. Uh, the idea is that as designers, there's a whole unseen experiential world around us in buildings, and in order to design it, and we need to be able to visualize it, and to visualize it, we need to develop unconventional design tools such as DNA sequencing um, is, is one example, to be able to think about you know the bacteria or, or viruses in our environment and how architectural impacts such as lighting, uh, lighting decisions or ventilation decisions in buildings can, can influence these unseen elements around us, uh, which we experience. So this course uh, is now two years old. We've done it, I've done it in Portland two years in a row. And in that course, we partner with architecture firms around Portland and look at, you know, real built projects or projects that are on the boards to be able to think about kind of the unseen elements in those projects that that impact our health, either at, a, at an individual scale or at a, at a planetary scale. So that's why we've done investigations around uh, life cycle, whole building life cycle assessment of mass timber buildings, where they're, uh, of course, with the timber or, or potential benefits of of lower carbon, um, and we wanted to really drill into that with projects and work with firms on on real projects to compare that to steel and concrete. We've done projects around lighting. Um, some of that's grown out of the biology and the built environment uh, center work on lighting indoors, and we've you know expanded it in the class to think about built projects. If I go back to some of that work. You know, a lot of that is informed with the research that we're doing in the Institute and the research that we're doing together with industry partners uh, that are part of our industry consortium called Build Health that are part of that research um, endeavor at the Institute. They help us really define the relevant questions that they're facing as designers and set that research agenda for the year.
0: Before we go any further, I really want to make sure that we take a deep dive and cover what the microbiome really means. Can you outline that for us?
1: Yeah. So the microbiome is a collection of of bacteria, fungi, and viruses uh, in the environment around us, and we are teeming with microbial life, with unseen unseen occupants in buildings, essentially, and and on our own persons, in our in our in our GI system, on our skin. We are. Uh, composed of microbes, and interact with microbes all the time. The microbiome of the built environment is really thinking about how that extension from our own microbiome might look indoors, and what that kind of unseen ecology looks like indoors, um, you know, composed of these viruses, bacteria, and fungi in our buildings. So the work was started About a decade ago, with the Biology and the Built Environment Center at the University of Oregon being funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, it grew out of uh, really the the 9-11 terrorist attacks when uh, there was a lot of talk about biological warfare and what would happen if we have a biological terrorist attack. What would, what would we, how would we even recognize it uh, in buildings if we don't know what should be there and what shouldn't be there. So this work grew out of that. Uh, the Sloan Foundation decided to fund about a decade of, of research into microbiology of the built environment, MOBI is the acronym. And this was a really fruitful and novel collaboration with biologists and architects. Um, you know, Typically, architects are really good about, about synthesizing work from all kinds of disciplines. And this is uh, another example of, of ways in which uh, these collaborations can really bear fruit. And this led to a decade of of investigations on first basic science of what is there, how does, it, you know, what what's in our buildings. A lot of uh, biologists thought that buildings were really not that interesting to study before this time, that, you know, they were, Essentially desert um, wastelands and not rich ecological uh, systems. So once, this, once the kind of the initial findings started coming in, it, it became very um, evident that this was a, a fruitful uh, you know research topic. And we have since started to think also about how we can shape these intentionally through architectural design decisions now.
0: Wow. Sounds like you guys are starting to translate that research into actionable items.
1: That's correct. Yeah, we're starting to translate that initial basic science research into um, design guidelines or design um, opportunities, I would say, rather than guidelines.
0: Really curious, what are the different trades that make up the Institute? You know, when sustainability started coming um, into focus in the last two years, we're starting to see more chemists and biologists and different trades come in to work on projects um, that are outside of the typical architectural or design background. What's your Institute made up of?
1: So, at the Institute, we work with biologists, we work with chemists, uh, toxicologists, engineers, physicians even sports products sports product designers so the the ability to reach across disciplines and think broadly is is what we need if we really want to think about health at multiple scales
0: In the past couple of years, it seems we've seen superbugs come up in hospitals and we're right now sanitizing our environment so aggressively that it's probably really affecting that biome, wiping it away. And the bugs are certainly becoming more resistant to those chemicals that we're needing to use in those environments. Um, Can you speak a little bit more to that?
1: Sure. I would say that with everything we do, we need to be thinking about unintended consequences. Um, that 's not just with you know cleaning our built environment but with really all all kinds of design decisions in our built environment cleaning does uh, impact the microbiome around us. There are different strategies for cleaning, and we wrote a paper on this uh, and published it last year, and we defined some of this cleaning as as what we were calling scorched earth cleaning, so the idea that you know we should remove every microbe in the environment uh as a way to to keep us safe and healthy is i would say a a paradigm that we're um questioning and thinking thinking about differently now so we we now know that there are specific microbes that are not harmful but actually important to our health and that a diversity of microbes uh is is also a part of this so as a gardener would tend a garden uh you know and and want a really a variety of of plants and and life in the garden to be able to kind of maintain balance we're thinking about building microbiomes in a similar fashion. So there are certainly times when you would want to have a more aggressive cleaning regimen in buildings especially if it's a healthcare setting and you have uh immunocompromised patients. Uh those are those are the situations where you would really want to make sure that you don't have specific pathogens that are exposing those individuals uh to to that you know to the pathogen in the environment. However, uh we we don't feel that that's appropriate for every environment all the time. Um from work that our institute has done and the biology and the built environment center has done together with external collaborators uh, there's evidence to suggest that antimicrobial compounds that are through hygiene products or through uh, kind of long acting um, antimicrobial cleaning agents or even through um, you know building materials with those antimicrobial compounds there's evidence to suggest that the uh, genetic makeup of the bacteria that are in those environments exposed to those compounds could be changing to be more resistant to antibiotics. And so, of course, that's a concern when uh, we start to change kind of the genetic makeup of the microbes around us where antibiotics are no longer potentially effective.
0: Mark, I'm needing to lean on you to really help understand how antimicrobial products work. Um, you know, we know that there's different surfaces that, um, have it embedded in them, such as toilet seats, countertops, things like that. There's also fabrics that have, um, different treatments applied. Can you help us understand a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So there, um, I, the term antimicrobial is fairly broad and I think, uh, we have to be careful when we think about that term because there are, you know, there are naturally antimicrobial um, materials such as copper, Uh, even, you know, salt on on surfaces can be antimicrobial as a desiccant. And then there are synthetic compounds that act antimicrobially. So, you know, some of these are um, compounds that have been banned by the FDA, such as Triclosan, which was in in soap for a long time, which is now banned, um, but it's not banned by the EPA for building materials, so it's it's found still in building materials of all kinds. You can find it even in internal toilet components, uh, as well as on flooring and paints. So there, you know, there is a difference between these these components uh, of you know how 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 long they persist, uh, what and the work that was done with the biology in the Built Environment Center specifically looked at triclosan uh, as, a, as a molecule in the built environment and how that was impacting uh, genetic makeup of bacteria.
0: You could share with us some of the highlights from the coronavirus pandemic, built environment considerations to reduce transmission paper that your team published. Could you highlight some of those for us? And um I'll also mention in here that for those that are listening, we will have a link to the full paper in our show notes. So you should definitely head over and read the full piece of it. But Mark hopefully can give us some of those highlights first.
1: Yeah, I would say that the highlights of the paper really are, uh, or the highlight is that the built environment uh, plays a role in the mitigation um, of the COVID-19 pandemic based on um, a lot of previous research that's been done and what we know from that research. So we we know that because the built environment plays a role that designers also play a role in and how we design and think about um, Buildings and operators of buildings also play a role. So there, there are several pieces in here that we that I could point out um, as being important. You know that we mentioned kind of the mitigation strategies. Um, there are engineering strategies, kind of engineering controls, if you will, that could be deployed. Some of these include you know UVC light or high efficiency filtration, HEPA filtration. Uh, are a couple of strategies that are engineering controls. But we also have to remember that, you know, any of those engineering controls come with energy trade-offs. And while we we kind of take measures right now in response to the pandemic, we want to be sure that we understand that those energy trade-offs are also a factor uh, that we should consider in the in the larger crisis of the pandemic. Uh, of the, of the climate, the global climate change crisis that we're facing. So we can't think about these things in isolation. And some strategies we can deploy now for the pandemic. Uh, a couple other strategies in the paper that we mentioned are thinking about relative humidity indoors. Uh, there's There's been some uh, work on this with other viruses that have shown uh, decrease in viability with a, a, with an increase of relative humidity, and so the humidity plays a role on on the virus uh specifically in the forty to sixty percent range, which is the the current recommendation um, where it's not too humid to cause moisture problems in buildings but um, but it's humid enough that also the the virus uh based on particle physics we think won't disperse as far in the air because of the humidity, and also maintains the the hydration of human occupants' uh, mucosal uh, membranes indoors, so that uh, that kind of provides a, a, a another layer of keeping keeping hydrated can be a strategy indoors. It it does uh, impact our own physiology in a way that um, allows our mucosal membranes to be. To be hydrated and have more of a protective benefit uh, to to virus uh, that we that we inhale, and we also uh, think that the higher humidity might not allow the the virus to get deeper into the respiratory system, as well as you know there are essentially particle physics uh reasons why you would want a humidity indoors that is within a forty percent to sixty percent range, such as as the humidity increases. The, the particle size increases and then uh, doesn't travel as far because of the size. It can fall out of the air more easily. It can also be filtered more easily. Uh, so there is a, a, a strategy to maintaining humidification in that range. Currently, there's you know, an upper limit for humidity in buildings because we know that bacteria and fungi can be a problem uh, and we don't want to cause moisture, moisture-related issues in buildings, but there's not a lower limit To the humidity in buildings. So, this is something that we're currently exploring uh, with research at our institute.
0: Mark, I'm wondering if you could dig in a little bit more and talk about ways that interior designers can mitigate the spread of infectious diseases. I know you've talked about other systems that um, come into play in the built environment, such as mechanical systems and. Interior designers oftentimes have to be recommending those at a higher level to clients or making sure to align those trades and the projects if they're not already on board. So there is you know, a part that I think our listeners need to be aware of, but I'm wondering if there's any more we could talk specifically about that interior designers might be able to apply from this.
1: Yeah, I would add that, that no filtration system is perfect. While it's a strategy, we point out that, that nothing is perfect uh, and we need to you know to think about that critically also you know u v c while that's also a strategy over time, exposing uh finishes and furnishings to u v c can cause can cause degradation, so that's also you know something as an interior designer to consider um we we think there are also a number of really low tech design strategies that are interesting and important thinking uh just about the use of space as a low tech strategy right right now we're all sitting uh spatially separated in our homes, and you know uh we this is an important strategy uh as we know right to to prevent the um the spread as we're not connected spatially and in buildings this can this can have a similar role and how you configure space uh impacts uh what type of microbiome you might find in that space this is from previous research that the Biology and the Built Environment Center has done at Lillis Business School in Eugene on the campus of the University of Oregon, uh, the the findings in that, in that work really showed that spatial configuration has an impact. For instance, an atrium space through which multiple people um, move during the day had higher diversity and abundance of microbes, and you can imagine that's because a lot of people come through they're exhaling microbes they're shedding microbes into that space, uh, and there's an opportunity for it to mix there in corridors that have single offices as you got you know with a spatial separation with doors to the corridor as you got farther down the corridor with more degrees of separation, the microbial community was less diverse and and had lower abundance, so that is another kind of um, impact from the use of space is that we can shape it intentionally, just on uh, our our layouts in in buildings, and of course as designers thinking about layouts and and open offices versus private offices, uh, and how circulation happens. These are all things that are really in our realm.
0: This is really fascinating to think about how different spaces and the environments, you know. If we even backtrack for a second and highlight what you said about the importance of thinking systemically as you approach projects, it's really, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And everyone needs to be individually thinking about how their clients and each project type, especially how healthcare environments are different from senior housing environments that are different from single family, multifamily residences, or even office environments or hospitality environments. They each have their own psychology and programmatic needs for how you can personally really approach each project.
1: Yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, for sure. That's the challenge with making recommendations right now is that buildings are site specific, they're program specific, uh you know, they're they're morphology specific and we we know from some earlier studies uh with SARS outbreak in um in Hong Kong that you know, opening a window in a very dense multifamily housing project allowed some air to come back in uh exposing other other units to Uh, the virus. But that was a very unique project. The morphology of the floor plate was very unique. And, you know, the microclimates there are unique. So it's hard to take that one piece and then apply it to everything because they're all buildings are unique. Occupants are unique. So what we're starting to say is that, you know, we're, we're drawing these six feet circles everywhere, right on trace paper. And of course, buildings aren't flat, buildings are spatial. So there's more than that one dimension we need to think about. And then when you add the extra dimensions of the occupants and their own immune status and the dimensions of the building science factors, such as humidity and um, air movement patterns in buildings, there are way more dimensions that we need to consider as designers uh, of these spaces.
0: How do you foster a healthy microbiome in the built environment?
1: yeah I guess quote unquote good microbes would be the the microbes that that don't cause us harm and actually might confer benefits uh to us those that are commensal or even mutualistic uh, are the microbes that we're talking about I would say as quote unquote good uh so you know not not specific pathogens or disease causing agents you know there are a couple of things to unpack i guess you know one as humans we've evolved outdoors in in natural ecosystems, much longer than we've evolved in our indoor built environments. So we've been exposed to a wide range of microbes in these outdoor natural systems. And our our evolution is uh, such that our, our biological evolution is much slower than our built environment evolution. And sometimes there's a mismatch between those because of this uh, kind of speed at which we're moving. And changing. So, what we're trying to do is to connect us to those outdoor microbes, those that provide diversity, can confer, confer benefits. And and there are, there's a number of streams of research on, in the medical fields on on these different kind of communities of microbes, whether it be on our skin or in our guts. As architects, we're really focused on the built environment, but you know ways to connect us to those. I would say those commensal microbes, those outdoor plant and, and grass and leaf associated microbes are you know through v- ventilation is one strategy. So when you open a window, you bring in that uh, outdoor microbiome indoors. And when you close a window and you filter a building without the windows open, you don't allow for those outdoor microbes to really get into that indoor space. And you start to concentrate the human-associated microbes that we are shedding, either from our skin or through our, you know, through our gut, into the indoor environment, and with that, you have a higher chance of encountering a human-associated pathogen, and and lower diversity of the indoor microbiome that microbiome that we're exposed to.
0: So I feel like I'm in the dark here. Can you go into a little bit more detail on how? pathogens and viruses work in environments?
1: Yeah, so viruses aren't actually alive. You know, they need food sources and they need water in the, in, the, in the environment. And so this idea of out-competition is, you know, an idea of basically introducing non-harmful other microbes that would basically take over, you know, the resources from bad, bad bacteria as a way to kind of out-compete them So that just naturally, that that ecosystem would be balanced.
0: When you and I talked a while ago, we had discussed probiotics being introduced into cleaning agents, and that was something that was being studied. And that has really hung with me is, is it good to introduce back into our environment's healthy microbes? And does that help? Does that help in the long run, in the short term? You know, what are you guys really seeing? That's been a big question on my mind. And I know it's one that's not simple to answer as we're talking about so many different variables and considerations, such as viruses interacting with different materials and lasting on materials at different survival rates. Um, It's really something I've been pondering is how can we foster a healthy Microbiome environment. And I guess I'll backtrack and say I'm concerned. I'm really concerned that we're going to continue to over sterilize our environments. And I'm concerned that though we're trying to, you know, combat the spread of the coronavirus, we're also maybe doing long term damage to ourselves. And just really wondering if you could give us some more insight into introducing good microbes into the environment.
1: Physicians are, you know, using yogurt to replenish the 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 gut microbiome for and after surgery and and during you know periods where patients are on antibiotics as a way to to kind of reintroduce reintrodu- those those beneficial microbes. And so the analogy in buildings is, you know, opening a window is one way to kind of introduce you know yogurt, uh, if you will, for your for your building. Uh, there are companies that are working on lactobacilli type products and cleaning agents to be able to introduce directly through a cleaning agent. We think that this is an interesting direction to be able to, to curate your own you know, indoor microbiome intentionally, and I think this is kind of the direction where, uh, that's very exciting, where a lot of us are, are interested in seeing this uh, research head, but it's, there's still a lot of research that's needed. Materials indoors have an impact. That's something we're finding from research that we are conducting at the uh, Biology and the Built Environment Center. And I think this is, for me, super exciting as a designer to think about how to use materials. As you mentioned, you know, kind of survival time on different materials for the coronavirus is something that's been published by the CDC. There is survival time, but there's also ability to transfer that's important too, right? So something can survive but if it can't transfer then it may not be as much of a of a problem as something that can survive and be transferred more easily we're starting to reassess building materials and how we think about them i would say for the first half of the 20th century we were very focused on hygiene and sanitation but used a lot of regional uh, natural materials in buildings and the second half of the of the 20th century we were more focused on energy and comfort and we start seeing the introduction of synthetic materials uh, introduced into our built environments. This is something we we think has has changed the microbiome around us. We've actually done some research. We have a paper that's published through uh, the Biology and the Built Environment Center on phthalates, dust from from vinyl. Of course, that's a, a common product that's out in in the built environment. But we're looking now at wood and unsealed wood and how wood might have the ability to not only kind of sequester away the, the the potential harmful microbes in the pores where they're not transferred, but also um, through, you know, desiccation or terpene release might actually change the, the viability of the microbes that are on the surface in the community structure. And that's work that's currently underway. We've had some preliminary results, but there's still more work to be done there. And we were fortunate to receive a a wood innovations grant by the U.S. Forest Service to continue to conduct this work and think about how uh, that might even impact the use of wood in, in healthcare environments and how we might think about using this more such as structural mass timber in these environments as we start to learn more about how it behaves more complexly. There are other materials too. I, I guess I want to bring up that you know that have been used for a long time, such as clay. You know, uh, earthen plaster and clay commonly used around the world. We've used as humans this, this you know, centuries, and it's kind of fallen out of favor with drywall now, but we've done research on this as well. We actually had a study that compared wood versus earthen plaster versus painted drywall and concrete to look at the surface microtopology as well as the air chemistry profile coming off of these materials. That was actually done by Elliot Gall's lab at Portland State University, and then we at the Biology and the Built Environment Center looked at the microbiome that was being structured based on kind of the factors, these all these factors put together. So the the surface porosity and and the um, the chemical emissions, and so that led us to really think that materials are an important factor in how we design for non harmful microbiomes indoors.
0: It's interesting you bring up the introduction of natural materials into the environment such as plaster and wood which are really warm, rich, beautiful materials that I love to work with and you know it something that's been on my mind since we all went into isolation is everyone's talking about the new normal or you know what we might see moving forward is a sterile clean environment and you know, everyone keeps saying it needs to be slick, it needs to be clean, it needs to be light colors, it needs to be white, it needs to have a perception of clean in our environments, even if it's not necessarily physically clean. And I get that. But there, you know, I really love that you're saying natural materials and getting us back to that idea of biophilia, and materials that just feel warm to touch, and are beautiful to be around, but also might be ones that viruses live on. And I'm you know, I know that this is something you guys are currently studying. So I'm really excited to continue to track that and watch um, where this research goes. I think it's such a wonderful opportunity, and it's just what we need in our environments: is warm, cozy spaces to be in.
1: We know that there are other benefits as well. You know, we know there are biophilic benefits to to the occupants looking at these materials you know, so just visual benefits, and we're exploring the unseen benefits in addition to these visual benefits. We're also excited about plaster, clay plaster, and wood for their ability to naturally buffer and regulate humidity indoors, and so this is another thing that we're exploring uh, with the natural materials. Some of the work that's going on right now in our lab is focusing on COVID-19 and you know, how it's spread around buildings, to develop more situational awareness. Uh, we are doing pilot testing now. We're actually looking at potentially doing this as a service. We're exploring that because we've we've been doing it for a while now. And with some of the work that's been done, we're able to locate zones of buildings that might need more attention uh, based on some of the techniques we've developed. So if we have this situational awareness of the unseen in buildings, we think that that can help us adapt our strategy to be smarter so that we're not doing scorched earth cleaning everywhere we're really thinking about it strategically and more surgically so that there are certain areas that might need uh, a kind of a change in in strategy uh, you know a mitigation technique but other areas may not and by having that situational awareness it allows us to be more nimble in our in our response i would say it's kind of analogous to fires in buildings and the way that we've developed grew out of this very real need for safety in buildings and the real need for occupants to to be able to understand when it's time to get out and when it's time to you know take steps against <laughs> what's going on the fire department gets called right when when these things go off and that's you know what we're trying to develop now with disease causing agents in buildings such as such as SARS-CoV-2 we know that people want to feel safe in buildings and buildings are the engines of our economy and we need to be back in our buildings because this is where we create community. This is where we're productive. And in order to do that, people need to feel safe. And, you know, such as fire is very visual. You can understand there's an acute danger in in a fire event in buildings, but we don't understand potentially some of these dangers that are unseen and, you know, dangers that are chronic, such as, you know, air quality issues in buildings are are harder to, to understand for occupants. And of course microbes that are unseen or harder to understand so we oftentimes retreat to just kind of doing a bundle of majors whether that be scorched earth cleaning and you know uvc lighting and hepa filtration and all of those things together instead of doing it more surgically because we don't have that situational awareness
0: yeah yeah definitely it goes back to our point before it's not a one-size-fits-all it really it could be space by space even within a project and not every environment.
1: Right. Well, we know there are also privacy concerns if you start testing individuals. And it's really unrealistic to think about testing everybody that's coming in and out of a building every day. But it's not unrealistic to test zones of a building or one building a day. We can easily do that. We've done that now for the last couple of months, looking at this uh, SARS-CoV-2 and some pilot work that we're doing. And we know that that is a way to anonymize uh, the, the results. We just have environmental sampling and not individual uh, human sampling. Uh, so that allows us to still take measures in a, in a more strategic way.
0: Well, Mark, we've really, we've covered so much today and taken a deep dive into materiality and good and bad microbes in the environment. I really, really appreciate this. I'm wondering if you could summarize for us what you think our role is as designers in shaping a healthier environment.
1: We have a a big role to, to play in this. And we have a role to play in the climate crisis, right? Buildings consume a lot of energy. And while we're talking about biology right now, we really should be talking about energy because the, the two go hand in hand. As we take, you know, measures to kind of mitigate the coronavirus that's going around right now, though a lot of those majors have energy implications, they have land use implications, they have urban design implications. And so we can't kind of disaggregate the energy impact and the climate crisis impact which has very strong public health consequences from the COVID-19 you know, public health crisis. So we as designers need to think broadly, and we, we have a very substantial role to play in this. And so I'm very happy that you invited me. I'm, I'm always you know, excited to talk to other designers about this and look forward to, to hearing from your audience.
0: Oh, Mark! Fascinating, fascinating development. This really has been wonderful, and I appreciate you know your time in talking to us about how viruses interact with the environment, the good and the bad, and really, you know, what the unseen, um, making that unseen, making it seen, making us aware. That there is something out there that we can't see, but is really important to our environments and to the health and success. And it's just another facet of sustainability that I'm excited to continue to watch your guys' development on and continue to implement into projects. Thank you. All I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want more, please spread the love and subscribe to this podcast. You can find supporting information in the show notes for this episode on milelongtrace.com. If you're itching to have a question answered about the interior design profession, visit our website to contact me. Don't forget to follow Trace on Instagram to stay in the know. Hey, share this with your friends to grow this platform so that we can continue to provide you kick-ass information that is relevant to you and your profession. Till next time, keep designing y'all.